we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. I shouldn't have spotted to do that. That was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. Okay, well, I already said it. So Matthew 16 is where we're going to be at tonight. I, and I'm just going to start off with a series, a, a, a series of questions. So we, we've been talking about some, some foundational truths out of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, that kind of guard you know, our foundational understanding, what we think about God, what we think about the Bible, what we think about our Christian life today. Well, there's been something else that uh, has kind of been bubbling underneath the surface, that another topic that I wanted us to look at together as a church. And so just a few questions here to kind of set the stage for what I'm, where I'm kind of trying to head to. And, and the first question is this, who or what determines the polity of the church? Now, polity is just a word to mean the structure, the organization, the model, who decides what in the church. In other words, uh, how is leadership selected in the church and what authority is given to that leadership in the church. So who or what determines the polity of the church? So that's one question to be mulling on. Uh, some churches use a system of committees. Uh, some churches use a system of teams or they have a board in the Episcopal church. They have a vestry. Uh, the vestry is synonymous with a board of directors. And so uh, some churches have trustees, they have boards, they have deacons. They, uh, you have a wide variety of different churches that set their organizational and managerial structure up differently. But who or what determines the polity of the church? Another question. How is a church to be governed? Is it to be governed congregationally? That everything that is decided upon, everything that is asked about, is it congregationally led? Is it led by a board that is selected by the congregation? Is it led by the deacon body? Or is it led, and this is a a terminology that some of you have been hearing more and more lately, is it led by an elder body? How how is a church to be governed? Third question. How much of the church today is more traditional than biblical? There's a lot of things that we do in the church that I don't have a chapter and verse for. We start Sunday school at 945. I would come to you and say, "No, we're going to start church at t- we're going to start Sunday school at ten o'clock." You're going to go, "Huh?" huh. I mean, not not every one of you, but there there may be some that may go, "Huh? We can't do that. Why?" Well, that, that that's just not the way it's done. Says who? So there's things that we do in the church that are more traditionally driven than biblically driven. Whether it's the time of service or the, the time of our services, even the order of services. Uh, a couple of, I think it was one or two Sundays, Greg did the offering at the very end. Uh, everybody's going to have an opinion. And, I, and you can all look at it, well it didn't bother me. Everybody has an opinion. Okay, so let's just dispel the myth that nobody cared. Everybody has an opinion. I'm not saying it was positive. I'm not saying it was negative. But when that happened, a vast majority of people recognized it and automatically formed an opinion whether they liked it or not. And I wonder, when we form that opinion, what informs that decision? Is it a biblical precept? Or is it a traditional precept? What about the idea of business meetings? Or us voting on accepting members? Or 
even this whole concept of church budgets and church finances. How much of what we do as a church is more traditionally driven than biblically driven? So in just the last nine months since I've been here serving here at this church, this question has arisen a lot. And here's, and here's how the question goes. Who makes the decision? Does the pastor make the decision? Does a committee make a decision? Does a singular person makes the decision? Who makes the decision? And, and right now, the way that we're set up in our constitution and bylaws is that a, a, a person comes to a committee, says, Hi, I have an idea. The committee meets. The committee uh, works through an idea. Then the committee comes and presents it at a business meeting. And then, uh, based of our constitution and bylaws, if it's something that we want to do, then... According to the Constitution bylaws, it sets until the next business meeting before action is taken up as a church up or down. So in other words, somebody comes in February, says, I have an idea. They meet in February. They come to March, present at the business meeting. It's May when we have the next business meeting before it's decided yes or no. Well, there are some things in the church that need a shorter timeline. <laughs> to be fair and to be honest, there are some things that we shouldn't have to wait from February to May to make a decision. But the question is, is who has that authority? Or maybe another way, another question that's come up during my time here so far is, what is the boundaries of leadership? What is a decision that you can make and a decision you can't make? So we've been battling. And Ron's been so good. But we've been battling on a leak in this hot water tank. And Ron has come up here and looked and tried and come up here and looked and tried. The reality is, is he didn't install it. And I don't think, Ron, you install um, those kind of Navion's tankless hot water heaters on a daily basis. I know the person that did install it. <laughs> so yesterday morning, Ryan Troop says, hey, it's leaking again. I call my father and I said, hey. You installed it. <laughs> you install these on a regular basis. I would like to cash in on some warranty work. So he came up here yesterday afternoon. He looked at it. We're supposed to have the parts. Um, and hopefully we'll have the thing fixed once and for all. But who makes that decision to make that call to make that move? And even more than that, the question has come up multiple times. Well, what is the right way? I don't believe there's a single person in this room tonight, even including me, that desires to be a, a dictator, uh, authoritative despot. I don't think there's anybody in the room today that says, I want to have total control and I want everybody to do it my way. I think every single one of us are coming together saying we want God to be glorified. We want for the gospel to be uh, proclaimed. We want to see people come and to be edified and blessed by the life of the church. But sometimes we need to ask ourselves... What is a church? So over the next several weeks, I, I just I'm going to ask us as a church to look through Scripture as far as what it is that defines a church, or maybe what it is that the Bible tells us and speaks to about the church, and and not necessarily going it from a tradition driven or this is what I think or this is what we've always done, but really coming at it and what does the Bible have to say about the church? So I already gave it away, but does anybody know? Where we first see the word church in the Bible. Matthew 16. <laughs> Matthew 16. That, that's, that's a good guess, Greg. Okay. So Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is the first place that we see the word church used 
in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. It's the first time that we see it being used. And so what I want to do tonight in, in just kind of setting the primer for this is just ask the question, what is a church? What is a church? Before we get to the governing bodies, before we get to what the church functions, before we get to what we should do or not do, before we get to the polity of the church, I just want us to think and consider for a few moments tonight, well, what is a church? Well, I am going to go to the first place that we see the word church used in our Bibles. The, the, the scene that is setting there is Jesus has his 12 disciples. He's right there in the throes of ministry. And it says in Matthew 16 and verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Now if you were to go to the other parallel passages, Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, these other two Gospels give this parallel account. But where they stop short of is they stop short of what comes next. Jesus asked the questions. The disciples answered Jesus. But here in Matthew, he is the only one out of the four Gospels that gives us this following narrative. So back up in verse 15, he said, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So you go over to Mark chapter 8 or Luke chapter 9. They will say, they will confess that he was the Christ. And then it will just skip down that he charged them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So they leave out this conversation that Jesus has with Peter. So Matthew is the only one. In fact, there's only two places that you're going to find in the four Gospels where the word church is used right here in Matthew chapter 16 and then you fast forward to Matthew chapter 18 and when they're talking about church discipline and how people reconcile their their difference between one another in chapter 18 and verse 17 the, the word church is used twice there in that language so the question comes the question is there what is a church so Matthew 18, I'm sorry, Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus looks at Peter and says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now there's been a lot of conversations as far as the role of Peter. The Catholic Church has their opinions, uh, and you have the, uh, the, the, the original words of Peter versus rock. That, that's not where we're headed to tonight. I'm just asking the question, what is a church? Jesus says, I will build my church. Well, what is a church? What is it that Jesus is referring to that constitutes or that defines a church? So you go back to the original language and you look at, well, what is that word in the Greek? The word there in the original language is ekklesia. I'm sure a lot of you have probably heard that before, ekklesia. Ekklesia, if you look up in a, in a Greek lexicon, a Greek dictionary, ekklesia would simply mean an assembly. It's a congregation. It's a, a group of called out believers. In other words, 
the way that Jesus is referring about it here, if you were to think about a definition, it's an organized groups of believers operating, operating as a local body of believers under the authority of Scripture. So Jesus is saying this church. He's making a reference to a visible. He's making a reference to an assembly, a called out group of believers. That's the way the word is being used. But here's the problem. Jesus doesn't define what a church is. So Jesus doesn't go on in a parable-esque teaching. He doesn't go on to define or explain, well now let me tell you what a church is. Right here in this passage he says, Peter you are the rock, or Peter uh, what did he say, blessed are you some of Barjona, and then he goes out I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then he goes on, but he never explains then what is a church? Well I We have since taken this and ran in a lot of different directions. But Jesus never defines what a church is. You get over to 18, chapter 18 and verse 17 when he also refers to the church there. He doesn't talk about what a church is. You fast forward to Acts chapter 5 and verse 11 and you think about the scene where Ananias and Sapphira they sell the field, they cheat God, they keep back some of the money, they bring some of the money in and say, oh, we are giving all of it to you. The Holy Spirit knows they're lying and when he catches them lying, they fall down dead. Then the other one comes in falls down dead and the references are that the church trembled in fear because they saw the power of God working. And it uses another reference to the church. Go from Acts chapter 5 and you will see numerous church, numerous instances. I think uh, the church is translated into English from Ecclesia 116 times in your New Testament. But you have Matthew 16, Matthew 17, or Matthew, I'm sorry, 16, Matthew 18, and then starting in Acts 5 and from then on. But you never see a definition where Jesus says, okay, let me lay it out for you black and white. This is what a church is is. Which can be a little bit disconcerting. (laughs) Because a lot of times we just assume that it's in there somewhere. A lot of times we just assume and and we're going to look through the rest of the weeks that I do believe Scripture gives us an example. Scripture gives us a model of how a church is to be organized, how a church is to function, how a church is to govern, how a church is to operate. I think those are there, but I want to be really quick and upfront and honest with you to say we do not get the definition from the lips of Jesus. We get it through the writings of Paul. We get it through the examples of the early church in the book of Acts. We get it, but we need to be careful that we understand that when it comes to the church, there needs to be some humility. Because right now, you you think about it and think about the differences between what tradition says and what Scripture says. Because Jesus never defined what a church is during His earthly ministry, then when He asks ourselves, well then what is a church or what isn't a church? How do we define what a church is? We have the traditional aspect, but we also need to think about what is a scriptural aspect. Let me, let me throw some ideas out. Does a church have to be a physical place? Okay. Okay. People that meet in movie theaters, people that meet in school cafeterias, a temporary place in a, in a church planting type fashion. They meet in a library conference room. 
They don't necessarily have the physical space as if you actually had a, a facility like what we're in right now, but are both a church. Do you need to have a physical meeting place to be a church? Can a church be a home group? How many is required? So Alan said, well, where did Christ meet with all his disciples? I mean, you think about he was the one that started the church. Where did he meet with his church at? They weren't meeting at 310 Birch Street. By the lake, in the boat, in the in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sure. Okay. All right. So then we can ask ourselves the question, well, place, number. Rick said two people coming out of a, was it Matthew 18, where it talks about where two or three are gathered, there I am amongst them. Um, the idea that how many people does it take to create a church? How many people uh, needs to be a, a church? And how, how is a church organized? What does it mean to be a church? You go down there to the Church of Christ. And you look on their sign that's right in front of the, the foyer. And it has their sign about the information of the Church of Christ. And then it says, minister. And that's where you put a person's name. And it says, all church members. And they're not the only one. Church of Christ are known for that. Where they don't initially have one particular pastor. They have people on a rotation. And so, instead of us having a pastor that preaches on a regular Sunday by Sunday basis, we just start a rotation. And then just the men say, well, we're just going to divvy up. And, and, you know, we're all going to take a Sunday. And we're going to take a rotation. And every different Sunday, another man's going to get up and, and deliver the word. They do not see it as we have one person as the undershepherd or as the overseer or the pastor of the church that we are uh, all serving and ministering to ourselves. There's another group of people and I definitely don't want to be uh, uncharitable to them but uh, some people call it the assembly over in Luther. It's a group of people that come together, they have fellowship, they uh, do a Bible study lesson, but they feel that taking a name of an organization is sinful. They think that taking the name is wrong. So if you would say, where do you go to church? They said, I go to church with other believers. Yeah, but what is the name of the church? The church doesn't have a name. Well, you've got to go someplace. I mean, because they, they don't like the monikers. They don't like the stereotypes. They don't like any of that stuff. And so the outside people just call them the assembly because you got to call them something. <laughs> so I asked, I asked one of them um, the other day. Well, not one of them currently. One of them that was, that got out of it. But I said, so when you get up on Sunday morning, you get your kids ready. Where do you tell your kids you're going? I mean, if you're not going to church because you can't call it a church because taking a name is sinful, then where do you say we're going? Hey, kids, get ready. We're going to the fellowship. That's a name. The assembly. That's a name. First Baptist. That's a name. It's kind of difficult when we think about it. But so many times tradition has come in and put parameters around what is or what isn't a church. So people would look at it and say, well, I don't, I don't think they're a church. Why don't you think they're a church? Well, because they don't have a facility. They don't have a pasture. They don't fit this traditional mold. And I think we need to be mindful on a regular basis. Well, who defines what is a church? You? Me? 
so I'm going to take a stab at it. This is my stab. This is the way I slice it. You can have difference of opinions, and that's fine. You can say you're sorry for disagreeing with me afterwards. But I'm just going to take my attempt to think, well, what is it that we understand on what a church is? Now, this is just my swing at it. But when I think about how do we define, so someone wants to say, what is a church? Here would be a definition, a working definition. A localized group of believers collectively seeking to advance the kingdom of God to the glory of God. A localized group of believers collectively seeking to advance the kingdom of God to the glory of God. So if you were to say, Spence, what is a church? That would be a definition that I would give you. Now let me give you some scripture and we're going to be turning uh, to several places tonight. So you can turn to Acts chapter 1 because one of the first examples that when I think of what is a church. Now granted, I told you, we don't have a definition. Jesus doesn't say in the red letters, this is what a church is. We don't see this example. We don't see this explicitly taught in a parable or in some type of a ministerial form to the life of Jesus. So what we have to do is, is we've got to look at not only the model that Jesus gave us, the example that Jesus gave us, but we also got to look at the model that the apostles gave us, the early New Testament church, we need to look and see, okay, so what is the model that we have in Scripture as far as what it means to be a church? So one of the things that we see is that a church are believers united by proximity, faith, service, and conviction. If you skip down there to Acts chapter 1 and in verse 12, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, in verse 12 they said they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And then it goes on there and it talked about all who were there in the upper room and you skip down to verse 14 and it said all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So there was a certain group of believers that were united by their proximity to one another, by their faith in Jesus Christ, by their service to the kingdom of God and their conviction to follow after Jesus Christ. And so what we see as a church is these believers that are united. United by by distance, united by faith, and united by service. Go on there in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 42, we have another picture of what this looks like and what it means to be a church. I'm not going to read all of it, but it tells you starting there in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then you skip down to verse 47, the last sentence, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It gives us this picture, it gives us this example that these early believers were coming together and they weren't a church because of their liturgy. It wasn't a church because they had Sunday school and because they had a morning service and because they took up the offering and because they had nursery. It wasn't because they had necessarily a facility. It wasn't a church because they had an evening service or wasn't because they had a Wednesday night service. They were what I consider to be a church because they were bound by a group of believers collectively working together to advance the kingdom of God to the glory of God. They were localized, but this was a group that was coming together and they were not bound or identified by their address or their location. It was by their actions and by their service. Continue on there in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. You have another example of what this early church looked like. It said in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
It's this idea that they were all feet taking care of one another. You skip down to verse 34 and it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many were the owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. It's the idea that they were coming together and they knew when they were a collective body that there wasn't a person that was rich or poor. There wasn't a person that was better off or not better off. They were all one in the eyes of God and they were all one together. Does that mean? Does that mean that we need to be communistic? Socialistic? I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Do we need to be loving? Yes. Do we need to be charitable? Yes. But there's an example that we have of these believers that you're united by proximity, by faith, by service, and conviction. Acts 12. We see another picture of what the church is doing and how the church is behaving to help give us a working definition of what a church is. You see there in Acts chapter 1 that they are together, they are praying. Acts chapter 2 says that they are having this great fellowship and they have this great witness within the community. Acts chapter 4 is they are caring for each other. They're taking care of the needs of the people. Acts chapter 12, Peter is seized by Herod. He is put in prison. They assume that he is going to be killed by the removing of his head from his body and it says there in 12 and verse 5 so Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church and then you know the story that when the angel comes and rescues Peter and walks him out that Peter then goes to the house and he's knocking on the door saying hey I want to come in they're having such a magnificent prayer service they don't even think it's him they don't even realize it's him the servant girl goes and she Hears it's him, runs back to them, says, Peter, they're like, no way, no way. They're so busy praying for the safety and the release of Peter that they don't even believe that Peter's at the door because they were so busy in being together by faith, service, and conviction, collectively seeking to advance the kingdom of God to the glory of God. You see what the church is doing. Now, I realize that doesn't necessarily help us understand what a church is, but we can see by what they're doing, it gives us a picture of what they are. How do we define what a church is? We see a group of believers coming together serving God and serving one another that's what a church is or more importantly than that a church is called out by God you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and who is it that does the calling Jesus goes tempted to the wilderness he comes out of the wilderness he starts his earthly ministry says, verse 18, walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting it into the sea, for they were fishermen. And what does it say? And he said to them. It wasn't, it wasn't Peter and his brother, Andrew, that called to Jesus. Jesus called to them and he said, follow me. There was this idea that Jesus was calling his disciples. There weren't a single disciple that called Jesus to follow him. Jesus was calling disciples to follow after him. We are called out by God. Let me read to you John chapter 6 and verse 44. It says, do not grumble against yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. There's some other places you'll find in scripture where we're reminded that the Spirit is the one that draws the people to God. And so when you think about what a church is, we are a church of believers connected by proximity, connected by our service to God, but we're also a group of believers that have been called out by God. Set apart. For the purpose of sanctification. We're not the Lions Club. We're not the Moose Club. We're not the Kiwanis. 
This isn't a social auxiliary. We have been set apart by our Creator for His purpose and for His glory and for our service to Him. That is what a church is. It's a group of believers that are coming together saying, Woe is us! We are a people of unclean lips. To quote back to Isaiah chapter 6. That is the position, that is the posture of our hearts that we should be thinking, Well, this isn't just something that we take trifling. This isn't something that we take flippantly. A church is together by God. It's called out by God. You can think about it another way there in Matthew 28, that it's commissioned for a purpose. You think about the Great Commission and Jesus tells the church now some people would debate on this and that's fine. We can have these conversations but some people say no, he wasn't giving this Great Commission to the church. He was just giving it to the the 11 disciples that were there. Well, who were the 11 disciples? The 11 disciples were the founding Ministers, the charter members of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. I mean, that was the 11 disciples. It wasn't like he was speaking to the 11 disciples and they were a total different group. So you may say, well, it doesn't say that he gave the, the commission to the disciples. I'm sorry, to the church. It doesn't explicitly say that. Yes, it doesn't say that. But do you think the 11 disciples weren't members of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem? Absolutely they were. So who is he giving this to? He's giving a commission. He's saying this church has been commissioned for a purpose. Matthew 28 says, go therefore. He's giving this the reminder that there is a purpose to the church. Then you think about Acts chapter 1 and you have the parallel giving of the great commission. And he reminds them you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He says you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's for a purpose church, we have been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for a purpose. Not to shun, not to look around and say, well, those charismatics, they're a little bit driven away. Oh, they're getting a little carried away over there. We need to be a little excited from time to time. What's so wrong with us getting a little happy, getting a little shouting? Where does it say that you cannot shout in the house of God? It doesn't say that anywhere. Anybody know Dennis Jernigan? My name Dennis Jernigan. Okay, so man was caught up in a homosexual lifestyle for a number of years. God saves him out of that homosexual lifestyle. A tremendous musician. So for a period of time, back when I was like Eli's age, they would do this night of praise. And back where before it was Life Church, it was at Metro Church. And I don't remember if it was one Friday night a month or whatever it was, they would do this night of praise. My mama, and you can't tell her I said this, but she's always had this little Pentecostal streak in her where she kind of likes to, kind of likes to, to be at to be uh, animated when it comes to the worship service. And so my dad would never go because they didn't have hymnals and sing first, second, and fourth stanza of the song. But my mom, she would get us and she would steal us away. And we'd go down there and like Greg was talking this morning with the weathers about doing like a fifth Sunday sing. I mean, that's the entire night was just worship music. And Dennis Jernigan would sit up there with his piano and it was amazing. And I remember one of the first few times I went... I mean, it's, it's cool. You're watching people worship. People are raising hands. People are not, not dumb. I mean, this isn't irreverent. As far as what I saw, I didn't see anything irreverent. But there was this guy on the side aisle, and he was dancing. And I'm not talking about like the hippity hop, you know, music, you know, where you're being inappropriate and immodest. I mean, he's like doing this swan dance and he's like leaping around and I think dude 
sober up and sit down. I mean, get a hold of yourself. You're in public. What are you doing? And, and I know that I wasn't the only one that had a little judgmental, pharisaical streak in me. You know, because you look at that and you automatically assume, well, that is out of character until you get your Bible and you see when the people are bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem and David is in a loincloth dancing before the Ark of the Covenant and that's coming in and it's actually Michael that looks down that has disdain for what David is doing. Now, I'm not saying the two dances were the same. Obviously, we don't know what David's dance looks like, but he didn't feel like there was anything irreverent about acting out and being animated when it comes to worship. And so we have been commissioned. And so this this power of the Holy Spirit, I don't know why I got off on that, but this power of the Holy Spirit comes in and, and we're reminded through Scripture that when we think about what a church is, we realize that a church is comprised of believers by faith, service, and conviction. But we also realize this church is then called out by God. It's commissioned for a purpose. And then the church is also intended to be a lighthouse of hope. So we think about what is a church. A church is meant to be a lighthouse of hope. In chapter 5 and verse 16 of the Gospel of Matthew, this is what Jesus says. Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's, a, he's driving home this point that in our Christian life, we should be such a beacon of light that people can see what's going on with us and they should say, hey, that's kind of cool. And not you're cool, but God's cool because I see what God's doing in you. That is what they should see. They should see a lighthouse of hope in us. And here's the last one, that we are looking for the return of the Savior. One of the things that always just fascinates me is you go back to Acts chapter 1, and after Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father, Luke writes and he tells us, Verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, he says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So here's the picture that I see. And I can can understand. (laughs) Jesus is here, and then we don't know how it happened. I mean, we have all these ideas. Did he slowly levitate up? I mean, did they do like Garth Brooks? Remember that concert, you know, standing by the fire and he goes up when he's at Texas Stadium. You all remember that? Yeah. I mean, that got you excited. I mean, you're like, whoa. I mean, right before he smashed the guitars. But I mean, you bet he, does he just levitate up slowly? Was there like a smoke? I mean, was there like jetpacks that come up? Was it like a was it like a rocket man? Pew! I mean, how did this, we all wonder how this works, right? We, we, always, we always think about that. So I can understand the disciples are sitting there and they're looking up like, uh, uh. Now what? And listen to what listen to what the men of Galilee listen to verse eleven. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the two angels are sitting there saying, Guys, why are you just standing still looking up in the sky? He's coming back. So instead of being a baby turkey and just staring up in the rain and looking and daydreaming, you have work to do. You have a mission. You have a purpose. You have a calling. You've been called out by God. You haven't been united with other believers. And, and then this, this passage, and I'm going to read this in this last passage I'm going to go to, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is 
quite possibly my most favorite passage in all of Scripture. And I, I think we could read this every single Sunday, and I don't think that we could wear this passage out. I think we should all memorize this. This is part of our catechisms that we're going to bring back into the Baptist church. But First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, it, uh, Paul writes this, and he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who do, or others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's reminding us that As a church, we have been given the mission and the purpose and an opportunity to continue looking for this return of the Savior. So we say, well, then then what is a church, Spence? A church, my definition, is a localized group of believers collectively seeking to advance the kingdom of God to the glory of God. Okay, so then what does that mean that we do? (laughs) We unite. By proximity in our faith and our service, our conviction, we recognize that we're called out by God. We're commissioned for a purpose. We're, we're to be a, a lighthouse, a beacon for people to look to. We are, we are a group of people that are looking for the return of the Savior. Oh, there's all sorts of things that you put the nuts and bolts, you put the barts and the pieces on there, thinking about how it is, the polity, how it is, the governance, how the leadership takes place. But we first need to ask ourselves the question, well, what is this thing that Christ died for? Because he died for the church. Yes, he died for you and me, but he died for the church. And I think it's important for us to wrestle with the question, well, what is a church? Let me just give you three takeaways that I think that, that I'd like to encourage you to just consider in the days ahead. It's my opinion... That the church should be the the center of gravity when it comes to the community. I know you may say, well, the the home should be the center of gravity. No, I think the church, when it comes to the community, the church should be the center of gravity for the community in which it's in. Now, we're living in a day and age that that is not true. That there are a lot of different centers of gravities that we see pulling in a thousand different directions. But I think when I look at Scripture, I see uh, Scripture teaching that the church should be the center of gravity. You go back to Acts chapter 2 or you go back to Acts chapter 4, the church was a center of gravity. You go back to generations gone by and you see where everything revolved around the church. You used to have the bells at the top of the church tower that would ring to tell people it's time for church and everybody would come and everybody would gather for church because that is what you did. And now, it's optional. And now, it's not even secondary, it's Tertiary, thirdiary. Now it's an afterthought. And I think, in part, it's because even the church has lost sight of what it means to be a church. I think even the church has lost sight of what a church is and what a church was intended to be. I think it's in part because the church has given up so so much ground both individually and corporately because we've 
walked away from what it means to be the center of the church. I don't think that it's prideful, arrogant, or judgmental, or even unloving to say the church should be the center of gravity for the community. I don't don't think that's wrong-headed to say that the church should be the center of gravity. Everything should be attracted to the church. All the lost people should be attracted to the church because of our charity, because of our love, because of our joy, because of our enthusiasm. Saved people should be attracted to the church because of the ministry and because of the opportunities to grow and because of the fellowship that takes place here. People should be attracted to the church because they know that not only do they get encouraged, but they get truth and they get help in their daily Christian lives. There should be a certain gravitational pull from the church reaching out to the community, but right now we're not a gravitational pull. And I'm not saying this church in particular, I'm just saying that churches in general were more repelling than we are drawing. Could it be because we've lost track of what it looks like to be a church? Second thing I just want you to consider this week is the church is continually at risk of becoming sick. I don't know how many of you know the name Caleb Freeman. His father, Jeremy Freeman, pastor at First Baptist Church in Newcastle. Caleb Freeman, I don't know all the details of the accident, but he was injured in a very tragic automobile accident several years ago. Severe, severe injuries. There was a period of time they were not sure if Caleb was going to survive. They didn't know what was going to take place. It was touch and go. Uh, The church there in Newcastle gave Jeremy about a year out of the pulpit just to deal and to serve and to be by his family's side. Well, I've had some people come up looking at a travel trailer that Jaylene and I were selling uh, just a couple weeks ago, and one of the men, a father and a son, the son, who's in his, I think it was, who's in his 40s, but he mentioned that he goes to First Baptist Church Newcastle, and I said, well, tell me, did it help the church or hurt the church going through this season? Now, Jeremy is back in the pulpit, Caleb has uh, uh, regained the ability to speak, and he has spoken at different events and continues to speak at different events about the faithfulness of God, so that, is, that has definitely been some answer prayer that has come there, but I'm looking at this man who is a, lay, is a lay servant there in the church, and I said, has it helped or has it hurt the church? And what I meant by that was when you go through a tragedy, sometimes it helps unify the church and strengthen the church, and then sometimes it becomes a distraction, and everybody starts to feed on themselves, and it just kind of degrades. And he, he said, well, I think it helped us. But what really helped us is that we are a healthy church to begin with. So we are better able to fight the attacks throughout the situation. And I thought, yes. How many churches do we have that are not healthy? And they're not healthy because of leadership. They're not healthy because of membership. They're not healthy because of practice. They're not healthy because of faith. They're not healthy because of rank, unrepentant sin that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that nobody's dealing with and nobody's addressing and they are not a healthy church. And then when the tragedy comes because they're already sickly, you know what happens. They begin to disband and they begin to dwindle. The church is continually at sick or at risk of being sick. And so my desire throughout the coming weeks is not to try to express with you my personal opinions, but just say that all of us have a reason and a motivation to see that this church is a healthy church. And a healthy church is a scripturally founded church. 
healthy church is a spiritually led church. A healthy church is a God-glorifying church. Then this last one and we're done. I want to ask you to consider being vigilant and pursuing to be scripturally guided in our appearance or our, our, our survey of what it means to be a church and what a church is to be scripturally guided and not traditionally driven. Because the danger is, is we just start to say, well, this is what we've always done. That's what they've always done. That must be, that must be what is right and wrong. But as we come to this, I really want to honestly take a look and to say, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? We can talk, we can wrestle, we can visit, we can, we can chew on some of these things. What does the Bible say a church is to be? And if there are ways that we need to pivot, then we need to pivot. If there are ways that we need to adjust, then we need to adjust. If there are ways that we need to repent, confess, conform, whatever it may be, whatever the scripture is te- whatever the scripture shows us, whatever the scripture tells us, that is what I want to encourage us to consider to say, here we are. If the Bible says this is what it is, then that's what we want to be. So I'm trying just tonight to just give us an overview, brief definition of what I think a church is. Questions?